Let's take our Bibles right away. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Ephesians chapter number 5. And um, I'm going to look at a familiar passage uh, tonight and um, take a look at it maybe in a little bit different light than sometimes it is presented. And uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 18, most of us could quote the verse. Most of us know the verse. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And very, very often we, um, when we hear that verse and we hear that verse preached on and taught on, more often than not, it is preached on as a standalone verse without a lot of thought or consideration or reference to the context of Ephesians 5, and especially the verses that follow it. And very often we'll use Ephesians 5.18 and we'll speak about the need to be filled with the Spirit for soul winning. And it's true, you do need to be filled with the Spirit for soul winning or for service. And it is true that we need to be filled with the Spirit for uh, service to the Lord. But really, as you look at this and you consider the text and you consider what the Holy Spirit of God had the Apostle Paul to write, the context says that being filled with the Spirit, at least in this particular text, the, the main focus is how does that affect my relationships? And, and specifically, how does it affect my relationship with my spouse? How does it affect our relationship with our families and even our relationships beyond that? And so I want to look at this tonight and see that Ephesians 5 and verse 18 focuses primarily on relationships. And so uh, we're going to look at that text in just a moment. But uh, I, I read or I heard about a man named Ralph. And Ralph and Janice had been married for 50 years. And uh, that's a pretty big thing. You know, 50 years, it's a good long time. And, and that's a, a milestone to be celebrated. And so their pastor decided to take advantage of the longevity of their of their marriage, and um, he used them as an illustration in his preaching. And later on, he noticed that Ralph happened to be in the service, and he, he called him to the platform, and he, and he said to Ralph, he said, hey, would you come and tell us, how were you able to stay married for 50 years? How did, how did God work that out? And, he, and Ralph said, well, listen, I treated my wife well. I treated her with respect. I spent money on her, but mostly... What I did was I took her traveling on occasions. The pastor said, well, where did you travel with her? And he said, well, probably one of the biggest things we did was on our 25th anniversary, I took her to Beijing, China. And everybody in the crowd said, wow, that's pretty impressive and that's something else. And, and uh, the pastor said, well, you're a terrific example, Ralph. Tell us, what are you going to do for your wife for your 50th? And he said, oh, I'm going back to China to get her. You know the unfortunate truth about relationships? We think if there's longevity in them, they must be successful. That just because a relationship lasts for a certain number of years, they must be successful. And especially we attribute that to marriages, don't we? Somebody's married 50 years, oh wow, that's amazing, that must be wonderful. But the truth of the matter is, God's plan for marriage and for the family is greater than just till death do us part. And don't get me wrong, clearly 
That's the plan for marriage. God's plan is one woman, one man for life, and that is his plan. But I would also say this, God's plan for marriage is not to be endured, but to be enjoyed. And, and he wants us to have fulfilling relationships, and he wants the marriage to be a completing factor in our lives. And really through the word of God, we're given a tremendous amount of information about how to have a strong home and how to have a strong marriage. But I don't know that there's a passage that deals with it more specifically than Ephesians 5. And I want to begin reading in verse 18, and I'm going to read through to verse number 25, but we're really not going to get past 22. And I want us to remember as we look at this that really the context really spills over all the way into chapter 6. And uh, as you read your Bible, remember that chapter breaks were put there long after the word was inspired and that they, they serve a certain purpose for you and I, but the context very often will, will spill over from one chapter to the next. And that is definitely the case with Ephesians 5. The context spills over into chapter 6, still talking about relationships in the family, talking about relationships in our workplace and with our employers and employers with their employees. But I want to focus mostly tonight on verses 18 through 22, but I will read through 25 just to kind of set it in our minds. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And I think it's very, very important that we recognize before wives are told to submit to their husbands, we are told that we should enter into mutual submission first. And I think in the bulletin that uh, we have there, uh, there's a fancy title for this that says something like, Love Grows Where the Root is, is Submission or something to that extent. And I don't even remember what I told Pastor to write down there, but it's something like that, and I'm paraphrasing. Verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the, bo- and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to, unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And by the way, I would say that if husbands would carry out verse 25, it would be a lot easier and more natural for wives to carry out verses 22 to verse 24. Why can I submit to Christ? Because I know he always has my best interest at heart because he gave himself for me. And so... um, I'm not going to be able to get all the way to verse 25 tonight. We're going to focus in on verses 18 to 22 and and talk about what does being filled with the Spirit of God do for our earthly relationships that we're in. Father, please bless our time tonight and, and, and use this time to be an encouragement and a an help. And Lord, uh, as we talk about our society and our culture, Lord, the truth of the matter is that our society, our culture, even our churches will never be stronger than our families. And Lord, if we're going to have strong churches, we surely need strong families. And if we're going to have a godly culture, we need strong families that are a part of strong churches that are reaching their communities. So help us, we pray, to get back to maybe the basics tonight and focus in on 
uh, your institution, the family and marriage, and be glorified in what is said and done here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 5 and chapter 6 contain, really, I think, a formula that exists here for, for building strong marriages and homes and shows us that really that God is interested in that and a lot of it has to do with our relationship with the Lord. And what we need to understand is when our relationship with God is wrong, eventually all of our earthly relationships are going to be wrong as well, and especially in the marriage. And so our vertical relationship with God always impacts our horizontal relationship with others. And it is especially true in marriage and in the family. So I just want to notice some things that I see in Ephesians 5 that I think are criteria and help and encouragements on how do we build strong marriages. And by the way, I don't believe you can have a strong family without a strong marriage. And so how do we build strong marriages and then build strong families alongside of that? And, and the first thing is what we read and what I mentioned at the very beginning of this, verse 18, is there needs to be those involved in the family and the marriage need to be concerned with being spirit-filled. We must be concerned with being spirit-filled. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And you know this tonight, but let me remind you of it. Maybe you don't, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, but, but, but pay attention to this. This is so important. The Holy Spirit of God had the Apostle Paul write Ephesians 5 and verse 18 in a very specific way to present to you and I a contrast that is very important that we grasp the understanding of that. And you know, uh, if you've studied your Bible, that this word filled in verse 18 uh, is a special word. And when the Bible uses this word filled, uh, it holds the idea of being under the control of or being influenced by. Do you know that the, the Pharisees were sometimes filled with anger against the Lord Jesus Christ and that uh, controlled the way they acted toward him? Uh, the Bible says here, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's how the contrast works. When somebody is drunk with wine, what will we say very often? They are under the influence of alcohol. In fact, if, if somebody goes out and drinks a bunch of alcohol and gets pulled over by a, a police officer and they don't pass their breathalyzer test or they don't pass their blood test and they're arrested, what are they arrested for? What are they charged with? Driving under the influence, DUI, right? Driving under the influence of an intoxicating substance. In biblical terms, what fills you controls you. It influences you. It influences your actions and it influences your attitudes. Isn't that what alcohol does to people? It influences their actions. This is why we have determined that you should not drive under the influence of alcohol because you, you don't act in a normal way. You don't act in a prudent way. And your actions as well, just your, your physical actions are controlled so that you cannot respond the way you should. And so Paul says, don't be influenced by wine and alcohol, but rather be filled and controlled and influenced by the Spirit of God. 
And here's the thing that happens. There's a lot of confusion out there, and people say, well, how do I get filled with the Spirit of God? And, and there's a lot of theories out there that don't need to exist because the Bible's really very, very clear. And in fact, this verse really spells it out for us. Let me just first say this. The first thing required to be filled with the Spirit of God or influenced by the Spirit of God is you have to have Him dwelling in you so that He can influence you, and that can't happen unless you get saved, right? But ye are not in the flesh, Romans 8 and verse 9, uh, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So first of all, you have to be saved. And so uh, the first criteria is simply this. You receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You recognize that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. You cast aside all other kinds of ideas about how you're going to get to heaven. Recognize you're a sinner on your way to hell, that you deserve to, to the wrath of God, and you, you repent of that. You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the Bible teaches that at the moment that you do that, the Holy Spirit of God comes in and dwells you. Now, he indwells you, but that doesn't mean he controls you. There's a difference between indwelling and being filled. There's, they're not the same thing. And just because he's present doesn't mean he's in control uh, any more than a lot of times just because somebody is present in a room. You know, you look at a, at a, public, class, a, a public school classroom, I've had teachers in churches that, that, that in the church, especially in Arizona, we had teachers. And they are, would tell you, they'd be the first to tell you, just because I happened to be in the classroom did not mean I controlled the classroom. So it's not enough just to have the indwelling of the Spirit. There needs to be the filling. You need to make a distinction where God does. How do I get filled with the Spirit? Well, it's really very simple. You seek it. First you get saved and then you seek it. And, and that's exactly what Paul is telling us here in this contrast. Think about this contrast that Paul uses. Why did he use such a, what seems to be a strange contrast? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Think about this for a second. No person has ever become drunk with wine unless they sought to come under the influence of that wine. Nobody forced them to drink the wine. They sought the wine. They voluntarily sought it, and they voluntarily submitted to its influences when they partook of it. It was not forced upon them, and, and guess what? The wine didn't jump off the shelf and say, hey, listen, I'm going to take over here. They sought it. In very much the same way, if we're going to be filled with the Spirit of God, we must seek that and we must submit to His control in our lives voluntarily. For sake of time, let me say it this way. The best way that you can accomplish that is to saturate your heart and mind with the Word of God and then as you're reading and saturating your heart and mind with the Word of God, earnestly seek for the Holy Spirit of God to lead you by the Word. 
Is that not what Jesus said he would do in John chapter 4 and verse 26? But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And this is really the start of having a right relationship, not just with God in our day-to-day walk with him, but in our earthly relationships as well. And by the way, it's something that you have to seek on a very regular basis. Uh, The idea of be filled with the Spirit is being filled, be ye filled. And the truth of the matter is, we all know this, the the effects of alcohol eventually wear off, right? Uh, uh, Unless somebody keeps going back to get the drink, they eventually are no longer under the influence of alcohol. Unless you and I keep going back to the Holy Spirit of God, our sin nature gets in the way and we are no longer influenced by him. So we have to continue to do that on a regular basis. And and this leads us to this whole passage now moving forward that deals with our earthly relationships. First our marriages, then our homes, our families with our children and parents, and then it moves on to our other relationships, employers and employees, so on and so forth. But let's look and say, okay, in this context, in this context right here, I know, I know Acts well, I have studied it out. You know, you will not find an occasion in the book of Acts where somebody is filled with the Spirit where they're not a soul winner. So I understand the the tie-in there. Uh, You will not find an occasion in the book of Acts where somebody is filled with the Spirit where they're not only a soul winner, but they're serving. So I understand that. But in this context, in Ephesians 5, where we are specifically commanded to be filled with the Spirit, the context says, here's what's going to happen in your family. Here's what's going to happen in your home. Here's what's going to happen in your marriage. Here's what's going to happen in your workplace. And so let's look at that and say, what are the results of being filled with the Spirit besides soul winning in Christian service? There's some other things for sure. And number one, I want us to notice this. And verse 19 just simply says this. The result of being filled in the, with the Spirit in the home is going to lead to a home where we are sociable one with another. We are sociable one with another. And and what we need to understand is that God's plan for the marriage and for family is more than just a group of people or two people, husband and wife, sharing a common address. Uh, You know, God's plan for the family is that they would be strong, and that they would be Christ-centered, and that they would be filled with Christ-centered communications. Because verse 18 says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 says what? It, leads, it continues on. What does it say? Speaking to yourselves, by the way, yourselves is plural. It doesn't mean yourself, singular you. It doesn't mean sing in the shower as we talk about hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in your heart. It it means amongst yourselves. Speaking to yourselves or amongst yourselves. Now in the context, who are yourselves? Well, it's the husband, it's the wife. It moves on to the family. It moves on to your other relationships. And what are we gonna speak we're going to speak in, uh, to yourselves, is speaking to yourselves in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You know, it, it's hard to miss that this verse places a, a tremendous emphasis on a joyful Christian life. You don't meet a lot of people who are miserable, who are going around singing the psalms, the hymns, and spiritual songs and making melody. 
These words invoke the thought of joy, of contentment. People who are not joyful spend a lot of time groaning, moaning, and complaining. Not focusing in on psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and making melody. And have you ever noticed that joyful people are sociable people? They interact well with others. We might say it this way. They play nice with others. Here's the truth. Attitudes are contagious. As complaining and cranky and criticizing attitudes are contagious, and read your Bible, when when Israel complained in the wilderness, that became very contagious amongst them. So too are joyful and jubilant and pleasant attitudes. The difference is the former, the crankiness, the discontentment. It leads to disengagement. It leads to detachment. It leads to disconnection in relationship. Why? Because the truth is when you're cranky, I don't want to be around you. And when I'm cranky, you don't want to be around me. And the the fact is when I'm cranky, I don't even want to be around me if I'm honest But when we're joyful and we're jubilant and we're pleasant, it leads to fostering an enjoyment and a delightful attitude and atmosphere, and it brings satisfaction into a relationship. But the truth is, with all our social media, we live in a very unsociable world. People are more disconnected now from one another than they probably have ever been in history. There is all too frequent a detachment in the relationship between husband and wife. There is a disengagement in our families. And the truth is, you only need to go to your local restaurant to figure this out. I know it's 2020, it's hard to even go to a local restaurant anymore, but let's think back to you know ancient times, 2019. Pretend you're over here at Applebee's or Chili's or whatever your favorite restaurant is. And just sit and observe people for a little bit. I didn't say judge people, I said observe. Observe observe the couple that is sitting over here. Observe the family that is sitting over here. By the way, why do you think that these big chains have decided it's beneficial to put video games on the table just just so you could pay your bill more easily? No, there's something more to it than that. Why? Because if you will observe, you will actually notice that most people sitting at tables together are really just a group of strangers that seem to be forced to sit at the same table because they share the same last name. Little Johnny and little Susie have their earbuds in and they're plugged into the iPod. Or they're playing the video games on the, on the Zeosk or whatever that thing is called. Dad's surfing the internet on his smartphone and mom is texting anybody who will listen. Let's be honest. We coexist We cohabitate, we even congregate at the same restaurant table, but we do not connect and we certainly do not converse and there is no way that we communicate. We have been lulled into a a land of make-believe when it comes to our relationships. And we pretend that because we sit at the same table for an hour or so at a restaurant, while everybody does their own thing, that somehow we have a great relationship Hey, listen, I worked in maximum security prisons for over 11 years. I saw guys who would literally 
kill each other if they had the opportunity, but happened to share the same last name. And many times were forced to sit together in a chow hall at the same table because they had the same last name. Even though they were members of opposite gangs that would have absolutely been at war with each other. And guess what? Because somebody was watching, they could sit together and eat a meal without killing each other. You know what I recognized? It didn't mean they had a great relationship. We like iPods and we like surfing the internet and we like texting and there's probably nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. But we like them because they give us a sense of something that we don't recognize to be false. They give us a sense of peace. Nobody's arguing, but nobody's talking. You see, when mouths are only open to take a bite of a hamburger, there's a false sense of peace. There's a false sense of pleasure. Everybody's happy when they're doing their own thing. When people sit at the same table as a family all doing their own thing, there's this false sense that it's enjoyable to sit together as a family. There's a false sense of purpose. Families, spend, families have to spend time together because that's what they do, right? And when families make it through a meal without anybody killing each other in the restaurant, there's a false sense that there's togetherness and we have the same purpose. But let me ask you a question. What happens when the batteries die on the iPad? What happens when dad's phone has no signal and nobody responds to mom's text? Let me tell you why the restaurants have figured out it's beneficial to have the little video games on the table. Because the batteries do die in your devices. And they've recognized something that we have failed to recognize. This will keep the peace. This will make people happy. Let's bring this back to Ephesians 5 and verse number 19. And let's remind ourselves quickly what Paul says will happen when you and I are filled with the Spirit of God. When you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, it's going to affect our attitude and our actions, but it's also going to affect our communications, our, our conversations. And spirit-controlled Christians will have relationships where it is absolutely normal to communicate and speak about spiritual things. Notice what he says. He says, we're going to speak about doctrinal matters. I see that when he says we're going to speak about psalms. By the way, did you notice he did not say singing to yourselves? He said speaking. We're going to speak about doctrinal matters. That's the psalms. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you engaged in a thoughtful conversation on doctrine or scripture in your primary relationships? Husband and wife or with family? When you sat down and you said, hey, let's talk about doctrine. Not only this is what we believe, but this is why we believe it. When is the last time you sat at a restaurant and spoke about doxology matters? That's the hymns. This is, this, is, this is what God is doing and thanking God for his goodness. There should not be an awkward silence if you say to your children, hey, what good thing did God do in your life today? It should not be unusual for you to say to your family, hey, what is God doing in your life and let's thank him for it. 
We should speak about divine matters, spiritual songs. Do our conversations focus only on sports, weather, work, and hobbies, or do we communicate about spiritual matters in our relationships? Paul says if you're filled with the Spirit, these are the things you're going to speak about. And and relationships in which individuals are spirit-controlled will be healthy, they'll be vibrant, and, and they'll keep Christ at the center, and they'll communicate those types of things. There'll be those kind of, uh, uh, of relationships where it's absolutely normal for husband and wife to have uh, devotional times together and read the Bible and pray together, where mom and dad and children read the Bible together and pray together. That's what happens when we're spirit-filled. Just ask yourself a question. Does that describe my relationships? Number three, and I need to move quickly, A second result of being spirit-filled is not just that we'll be sociable and be able to communicate well one with another. We'll also learn to be selfless. Selfless. Verse number 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks how often? Always. And for how many things? Somebody help me. How many? Oh, yeah, that's, I thought that's what it said. Well, that's hard, isn't it? Notice that spirit-controlled people will be thankful people. Thankful people are people who are content. And this is what makes them selfless. That is, when, when we are thankful and content, we focus less on self and more on others. When we're discontent, we're focusing on ourselves. Uh, It's not that we never think of ourselves when we are thankful and selfless. It's just that the main focus of a thankful person, of a contented person, will naturally be others rather than self. This isn't very deep, but watch. The opposite of being thankful is to be unthankful or thankless. And if thankful people are content people, unthankful people are therefore discontent people. And people who are discontent have a certain selfishness about them. It's really simple. People are discontent. Why? Why are people at the core discontent? Because they think they deserve bigger and better than they're getting. Bottom line. That's why people are discontent. I deserve more. I deserve better. What does that do to our relationships? In the matter of a relationship, when people are unthankful and discontent, more often than not, it's because they are focused on the faults of the other person in the relationship. They are never satisfied in a relationship because they will never find anyone who will conform perfectly to what they believe is absolutely the ideal person that they deserve. And rather than be thankful for what somebody else brings to a relationship, they can't move past the self-centeredness and the discontentment for what somebody is not bringing to the relationship. You've heard people like this. I wonder why my husband or my wife can't do more of this or more of that. Why can't they be more like him or like her? Unthankful, discontented people look at other people's relationship from the outside 
and naively observe them from the outside and they imagine they've got the perfect marriage. Let me help you with something. No such thing anywhere. Marriage is a lot of work and a lot of hard work. Ask my wife. She's married to me. And as we do that and we look at other people's relationships with a discontented, selfish heart and we wonder why they can't be more like, we say things like this. You know, so-and-so's husband does that for her all the time. And the husband says, yeah, well, she doesn't nag her husband. These are the type of statements that reveal not just an unthankful, covetous spirit in physical matters because somebody didn't buy or do what we wanted them to do, but they reveal a more profound unthankfulness and discontentment in a relationship, finding fault in somebody else for not being what we suppose we rightfully deserve they be. It's not even that they're not the person we think they should be. They're not the person that I think I deserve. Now, I'm not suggesting we have to be thankful for the lack of, of what somebody is doing or not living up to their half of a relationship or their half of the bargain. But the truth of the matter is, in relationships today, here's how it goes. In a new relationship, it's about finding the right person. rather than, I'm just going to be the right person. In an established relationship, we long for the other person to be the person we want them to be, rather than to work for the person they are longing for, and to be the person they're longing for. And this is that selfishness and that self-centeredness that views and fantasizes and, and, and comes up with this idea. Our relationships would be perfect if the other people in my relationship would just conform to being what I think I deserve to have. And all along and all the time it ignores that the relationship is not about one person get, getting what they desire from the other. But growing together and becoming what each other needs and desires in that relationship. Filling in the gaps and working towards being the right person so as to complement and fulfill the relationship. And that's really what is addressed, especially in this text, especially with marriage. And marriage works best when each is concerned with fulfilling the other person's desires. What I'm saying is there's a certain selfishness in, in any relationship where the focus is all about me getting what I want out of it. This selfishness will do as much harm to a relationship as any real or perceived lacking caused by what you think somebody's not bringing to the relationship. People who are unthankful and discontent and selfish in their relationships but don't want to be as openly discontent as those we've just mentioned might make statements like this. Why should I always be the one that's working at this relationship? Why should I always be the one who has to make the first move? Why should I give of myself if they don't? Why should I be the husband that gives himself like Christ gave the church if my wife won't submit to me? Why should I submit to my husband if he won't give himself like Christ gave himself for the church? Can I help you with something? 
Usually, when one person is thinking that way in a relationship, it's mutual. And the other party is thinking the same thing. And relationships revolve in eternal circles of discontentment because nobody is willing to step out and break the chain. Heard about a lady who was hurt by her husband and wanted to divorce him. And she, yet she wanted to hurt him as much as he had hurt her. He had not been a, an ideal husband and... And she decided, I'm going to hurt him terribly, and then I'm going to get rid of him. She was given some advice by a marriage counselor. The marriage counselor said, listen, if you want to hurt your husband before you divorce him, here's what you do. Spend the next six months loving him, serving him, submitting to him. Act like you love him for six months. Carry out all your responsibilities as a wife and be the person that you know he wants you to be. And then at the end of six months, serve him with papers. You'll crush him. She said, oh, that sounds like a good plan. And so for six months, she did just that. She went back to her marriage counselor. He said, six months up, you ready to divorce him? And she said, oh, no. I've learned that I love him. You see, there has to be a selflessness in our relationships, and it comes when we're spirit-filled. One last thing, I'm done. In a relationship where people are concerned, first of all, with being spirit-filled and having a right relationship with God, we will learn to submit one to another. And yes, one to another. Some husband says, you mean I've got to submit to, your, to my wife? Well, that's what the Bible says. I, I, didn't, I didn't dream that up. That is exactly what verse 21 says. Before the wife is told to submit to the husband, we are told to submit one to another in the fear of God. You want to know what the problem with this whole submission word is and why we have such a hard time with it? Because we don't understand what submission is in a biblical context. It's important to understand that biblical submission has nothing to do with the order of authority, but everything to do with the operation of authority. And I think perhaps the greatest illustration of this is Jesus Christ himself. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus Christ submitted himself by washing the feet of the disciples. Jesus never gave up his authority as master and Lord when he washed the feet of others, did he? But he literally submitted himself. He displayed how biblical authority is supposed to operate and is supposed to operate with a servant spirit. And everything about Jesus teaches us servant leadership. Think about this. Jesus never stopped being Lord and Master when he surrendered his rights and he left the throne room of heaven for our benefit. But he did it. Jesus never stopped being Lord and Master when he sought to please others rather than himself. But the Bible says that he recorded he did always those things that pleased his Father. But he's co-equal with the Father. We know that. 
He's as much God as God the Father is, as God the Spirit is. And yet he submitted himself. And last time I checked, the Trinity had a pretty good relationship. Jesus never stopped being Lord and Master when he suffered for us on the cross and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And when Christians are spirit-filled, we'll learn that submission isn't about me just being able to give out orders. It's how I handled the authority I've been entrusted with. And from Jesus' teaching, it's a servant, it's a servant leadership attitude. And until you and I learn that we need to submit one to another in our relationships on a regular basis, we're not going to enjoy the marriages and the relationships and the families that God purposes for us. So be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What will be the result? Well, in the book of Acts, it's soul winning. It's service. And in a lot of other places in the Bible, it's exactly that. And, and all too often, that's the only thing we focus on. Because according to Ephesians 5... Probably the most extensive passage on being filled with the Spirit and the results of it. It's all about our earthly relationships and the fruit that comes out of it. Why? Well, I can't be a really good soul winner if I don't have really good relationships with my wife and my family. Can't be a really good servant in the house of God if I don't have a right relationship. Isn't one of the qualifications for a pastor that his house be in order? He can't, he can't be a good pastor if his house is not in order. This is why the focus is on our relationships here because God instituted the family first and then the, and then the church. And if you and I want to see our country and our culture turned around, it's going to start with strong families that are going to produce strong churches that are going to impact the culture and the society and you try, to, you try to reverse that order or mix it up in any other way, and it will never work. God says, be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It'll help your marriage. It'll help your family. It'll help your church. It'll eventually help society. That's why he moves on to employers and employees. Father, thank you for this day and your goodness and your love. Pray as pastor comes now that you close the service and lead him as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.